0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the Rhino Cast podcast brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On
0: this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with Nile Rogers, guitarist, producer, and founding member of Sheik. Stick around.
2: Rich. Hey, Dennis. We have had some amazing, amazing guests on this podcast.
0: This one, this is royalty. There's no doubt about that. So very excited to have Nile Rogers on the show.
2: Nile Rogers live from his room at Abbey Road Studios.
0: Yeah, how cool is that?
2: And what are we here to celebrate? We're here to celebrate the Chic Organization 1977 to 79. Six disc vinyl version and a five CD set, saluting Nile and Bernard Edwards. And it's a signature edition remastered at the aforementioned Abbey Road Studios. Nile was gracious enough to spend some
0: time with us and give us all the backstory about how it all came together. I think people are going to really find this conversation interesting.
2: Indeed. And we're talking the first three Chic albums. Sister Sledges' We Are Family, plus 12-inch mixes and 7-inch edits from the era. So there's going to be something for everybody on this one. And of course, besides just Sheik,
0: he has such a storied career. He's produced some of the most popular albums out there.
2: These records, it's a lot more than disco. When you hear about Niall's background playing at the Apollo and and how he and Bernard got together. It's really incredible stuff. And for example, for those who are listening who are collectors, you can't buy things like a 12-inch reissue of Sheik's first single. If you did find that on one of those auction websites, it would break your bank. There's no question about it. And you can get everything here in one fell swoop. Yeah, and this set has been remastered from the original Atlantic stereo tapes. And of course Niall was the executive producer. He personally oversaw the remastering process with the approval of Bernard Edwards' estate.
0: They really took the extra steps to make sure that it sounded fantastic. So, for instance, the six-disc vinyl version of this box set was mastered at half speed and pressed on 180-gram vinyl audio. This vinyl is heavy in both
2: content and weight. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to share this conversation that you and I had with Niall Rogers from Abbey Road. Well, let's get right to it. Would you introduce yourself, please?
1: I'm Nile Rogers, producer and co-founder of the band Chic, and a whole bunch of other things. Guitar player, arranger, composer, all that stuff. Debonair man about town, you know.
2: (laughs) That last one's the only thing, you know, at parties, that's the only thing that counts, really, is if you introduce yourself and you say, I'm a debonair man about town. (laughs) (laughs) that's all you need. And, you know, you have to do it in beat. I'm a debonair man about town.
1: Exactly. Bingo.
2: 1953. Well, your mom in 1953 was 13. Is that correct?
1: In 1953, my mom would have been 14 years old at the uh, beginning of the year. And she would have turned 15 in 53.
2: Beatniks, heroin artists. This was your normal, but, that said, there was a ton of music surrounding you. Lots of modern jazz, right?
1: 1957, I became sort of self-aware and I knew what music was. I knew who I was. I knew my neighborhood and all that sort of thing. At that time, I was living on the Lower East Side in, in Manhattan, you know, a block away from the Williamsburg Bridge. That's sort of where the story starts.
2: I literally got back from New York two days ago on some production, and I stayed literally at Delancey and Allen Streets.
1: Yeah, bingo. Delancey and Attorney Street, that's where I'm from.
2: And when I say this was your normal, you know, being surrounded by people shooting up, I mean, that, that sounds like such a negative, but everybody talks about the fact that that really was the musician culture back then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, at, at that part of town... Uh, that really was much more of the Jewish neighborhood. The sort of Bowery bums would have started a little bit further north. The Bowery that far down wasn't really bummy. It was bordering on Chinatown. It was the Schmada district. Bowery bums and the, and the heroin thing started a few blocks a little bit further north. It got really hardcore around Houston Street and places like that.
2: Classical was your original jam, but I am i think I'm right here, that a teenage crush changed it all. Would you tell me about her and picking guitar to impress her?
1: Pretty much everybody in, in the New York City school system played some kind of instrument because music was a mandatory part of the curriculum. I mean, it was just everybody learned music, everybody learned art. Not everybody learned it well. I happened to do well. So I played flute and stuff like that and... The final instrument I played in the symphony orchestra was the clarinet. And that was sort of lucky for me because I went from the clarinet to the guitar. And I played guitar almost on a dare. I had moved back to New York from Los Angeles. My uncle was dating this girl's mom. Girl was like gorgeous. She had a band and the band needed a guitar player. And I thought because I could already play other instruments that I'd be pretty good on guitar or at least could figure it out well enough to play in their band because they weren't really exceptional. They were okay. Oops, I was wrong. Oops. I tried to pick up the guitar. (laughs) I tried to pick up the guitar. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know how to tune the thing. I just tuned it to a place where when I played an open tuning of all the strings, I got something that was harmonically stable and somewhat melodious, but I didn't know how to really get around on the instrument. The guitar didn't make any sense to me, it being flat and having no valves or no nothing. It was like... You know, like a piano, you hit the thing and it makes noise. The guitar, you just pluck those strings and it it, it was weird. I, I couldn't make heads nor tails out of it.
2: So is it true that A Day in the Life was one of the first things that you strummed?
1: Yeah, actually what happened was I got a Beatles songbook and guitar songbooks have diagrams of the neck and it basically tells you the proper fingerings For the chords for a song. So they expect you to know the melody and you play the chords and you sing along. And that's what I did. However, when I fingered the chords, uh, when I followed the fingering diagrams, the chords never sounded right. They sounded like something good because I had tuned it in some sort of extraneous, obtuse way, but that the open strings would sound nice, but when I fingered them in the positions that corresponded to the chart, it didn't make any sense. My brain told me it was because I just wasn't fingering the strings properly, that I had my hand in the right position, but my fingers were somehow not laying on the neck evenly. And that's because I was thinking about classical instruments. I was thinking about embouchure and stuff like that. So I just kept trying over and over and over and over again, thinking that sooner or later, I'm going to get it and go, there you go. That's how you got to hold it. Anyway, my mom's boyfriend came home and he heard me struggling. And he said, Jesus Christ, what do you got this thing tuned like? I looked at him and said, like, I don't know. I got it tuned to the point where it sounded good. And he said, no, that's not how you tune a guitar. And anyway, the guy tuned it for me. And then the first thing I did was look at the Beatles songbook and play the positioning that I had been struggling with for a week, and it sounded beautiful. It was like, wow, first chord. <laughs> ah, Nice. It was like the first chord of a day in my life. I went, bring, and it was like, wow, it was great. And I played the second chord and the third chord, and then I went back and I sang very slowly. I read the news today, oh boy. Doom, doom, ka doom, ka doom. About a lucky man who made the grade, don don do don don't. I was like into it. I was like, wow. I felt like the first person who had climbed Mount Everest.
2: Yeah, but you know the way you just sung it—that was so Nile. <laughs> <laughs> you just made a day in the life your own, which is a great segue to Joe Raposo. I mean, Sesame Street killer gig.
1: Yeah, I got my job with Sesame Street maybe less than two years after I first picked that guitar up But when I played a day in life that day. I uh, Once the guitar was in tune, then I could practice properly because I had stacks and stacks and stacks of B-flat clarinet student books. I could read those books and read the music and just transfer that music as best as you could, transfer it to the guitar neck. And that was something that helped me a great deal, because it taught me how to play guitar without looking at the neck. Most guitar players have to look at the neck to play guitar. When I got my gig at Sesame Street, it was my first day at Manhattan School of Music, which was the former campus of Juilliard. I went down to the practice rooms. And down in the practice rooms, they had up on the bulletin board index cards for auditioning guitar players. And anyway, I got the gig with Sesame Street, so I never went to school. I took the gig. I mean, come on, would you go to school or would you take the gig? I took the gig. As soon as I auditioned, I got a call back. And when I got a call back, I got the gig. How old were you at that time? I couldn't have been any more than nineteen. It's a little bit tricky for me because we could probably figure it out if we look up in Google or Wikipedia, whatever, the first year that Sesame Street was on the air. So I wasn't there the first year. That was Carlos Alomar. Carlos Alomar wound up going and joining the Young Americans. No, sorry about that. Carlos went from Sesame Street to the Apollo Theater to the Young Americans. So I was probably with Sesame Street its second year or third year, not knowing if the television year sort of ran concurrently with the Apollo sessions.
2: Great segue. How long was it between Sesame Street and joining the house band at the Apollo?
1: I can't really tell because my teen years are somewhat of a blur, and they're only Mm -hmm. blurry chronologically. I remember all the events. I just don't know how long things took between events because just think, when you're 18... Uh, you've only been self-aware for 13 years, so everything seems like an eternity. You know, just think about it. Go back to when you were 18. It took forever to turn 21. But once you turned 21, you became 25 pretty quick. And from 25 yeah. to 30 mm-hmm. was overnight. And 30 to 40, I mean, forget about it. It's ridiculous.
2: So being in a house band, you're basically handed the charts for the artist and you need to play, very much like you know, the talk show bands have to do these days. Maybe you get a rehearsal. So tell me one story, if you can remember a good one, about an artist you played behind, and you were handed the charts and you said, whoa, (laughs) this is going to be something.
1: None of the charts at the Apollo were hard, but what was really interesting was my very first day on the job. That particular show was a complete review format where we had maybe five or six artists. The first act was Screaming Jay Hawkins. And I guess he was the opener because he only had one really big single, which was called I Put a Spell on You.
2: Because you're mine.
1: Exactly. And his routine was to open up with I Put a Spell on You. I didn't know anything about Screaming Jay Hawkins. I didn't know about his shtick with the Baron Samadie thing and the skull and the whole bit. So I just wanted to play the job well. So my eyes were fixed on the music director, who was a gentleman named Ruben Phillips. The song is in 6 8, and he goes, One, two, three, dun, 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 dun.
3: I put a spell on you because of my.
1: As soon as we hit the downbeat, Screamin' Jay's coffin opened up. Now, I didn't see the coffin being wheeled in because it was behind the (laughs) curtain, and I was paying attention to the conductor who was to stage left. So my eyes were focused on stage left, and I was sitting in the first guitar chair, and the coffin was to stage right, and he jumped out of the coffin scared the daylights out of me. I pulled my cord out of my guitar amp and tried to run stage left. And they, (laughs) the Apollo employees had stage left blocked. I couldn't get off the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Then I ran behind the band, behind the drummer, and went to stage right, and they had that blocked too. So now I had to come all (laughs) the way around the coffin. Now I'm standing on the front of the Apollo stage. And it it was the most embarrassing thing because the whole crew was in on it. The audience died laughing because they could tell it wasn't a joke. I was totally scared. And, uh, oh my God. And at that point when everybody was laughing, I realized, oh man, it's a joke and I'm the butt of everyone's joke tonight. I sat down, plugged in and played the show. And at that point, the old timers really took me in and taught me how to play and, there were at least two guitar players, if not three, on that gig. Probably two main guitar players who were in the Apollo band. And quite often, artists that would perform would bring a guitar player as their band leader. Because in those days, R&B songs were quite guitar heavy because of all the rhythm and all the parts.
2: Wow. Wow. So I am holding in my hand my original copy of I'm Doing Fine Now. I've been through several copies of that 45, but I've kept my original because I've I've loved that song, you know, since day one.
1: When I was doing Sesame Street, we would go out on tours, but they were doing the television show. So we would go out on the weekends or whenever they weren't shooting. So I met Bernard doing a pickup gig at a bar in the Bronx. The first time we played together, it was almost sort of like love at first sight. I mean, he was one of the best musicians I had ever heard, and he thought that I was one of the best musicians that he had ever heard. And we had decided that every gig we got, we would try and get that person put on the gig with us. So you were just mentioning, I'm doing fine now. A few months after I met Bernard, he became the band leader for the group New York City. And and of course we had the hit record. I'm doing fine now without you, baby. When he got that gig, he convinced them to hire me as the guitar player. That was sort of the start of something really, really special.
2: It was the start of the big apple band
1: yep the big apple band so it was new york city was the group signed to a label called chelsea records
2: yep a part of rca yeah, yes
1: exactly a lot of people don't realize this but the ceo of chelsea records was uh, married to christina sinatra and uh, tina sinatra Named our band. She named New York City, New York City. Also, I used to clean up the plane that was owned by her father, Frank Sinatra. And that plane was called the Christina. So I sort of had Christina Sinatra in my life since I was a teenager.
2: You toured behind Luther Vandross, Ashford and Simpson. And, of course, Luther would prove to be influential in other ways to your music as part of the chic choir moving forward with Alpha Norma Jean and the others. So... Let's segue a little bit into Big Apple Band, into Chic. A Fifth of Beethoven killed your name, didn't it?
1: Yes, exactly. So I'm working with Sesame Street. Then I go to the Apollo. Then I do New York City. Bernard and I gigging. We're going all over the world with these guys. They put out their second album, and the second album didn't yield any hits. So the group broke up and left me in London. The, our last gig was somewhere in England, I think in Hull or Goul or something like that. And anyway, so uh, we were based in London and we would just ride off on the, on the bus every day to the gigs. Anyway, so we were packing up the bus to go to the airport and somebody stole my bag, which had all my money and my passport. This was a Friday and I would have to wait until Monday to go to the US Embassy. You know the old joke, uh, what do you call a musician without a girlfriend? Homeless. Homeless. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, I happen to have a girlfriend, so I wasn't homeless. So I stayed at her apartment over the weekend. And over that weekend, she took me to see her favorite band, which was a group called Roxy Music. I had never heard of Roxy Music. And when we went to see them, I was blown away. I had never seen anything like that. I was obsessed with Roxy music because up until that time, every rock and roll band that I had seen, you know, except for the early rock and roll bands like Herman's Hermits and the Beatles, but now during the psychedelic era, every rock and roll band that I saw, whatever that band put on in the morning, that's what they put on to do a performance and I never saw a group get dressed up in couture clothing to perform for an audience. So when I went and saw Roxy Music and Brian Ferry and this whole production, and then also the audience was beautiful. The audience was sort of like in couture clothing. I was like, wow, this is amazing. So I ran out the next day to a section of town, uh, Camden, and where they had a lot of record stores, and I found three Roxy Music albums. I was like, these dudes got three albums, and I never heard of them. And I saw that they had Playboy Models. And supermodels on their covers. And I was like, whoa, we got to do the black version of this. I called Bernard up, Bernard Edwards. And I said, hey, man, we got to put the band back together. We got to keep the band together. We're still the Big Apple band. And I said, but I got the concept. We could be really sophisticated, put supermodels on the cover. Now, remember, before they coined the term supermodel, we only knew one model. There was this girl named Twiggy. She was the only model that we knew by name, that the world knew by yes. name. Before Twiggy, they were just models, right? You didn't, you didn't care. You go see, you know, a uh, Chanel show, fashion show. You didn't know the name of the models. You just knew the name of the fashion designers. So now all of a sudden these supermodels come up on the set and we decided that we had to have supermodels on our cover and we had to do the Roxy music thing we started putting together a band because our former or our fellow big apple band members didn't believe in this sort of sophisticated look and sound and whatever so the first person we hired was a keyboard player named rob sabino and rob sabino was good friends with this band called kiss and kiss didn't have a record deal either and we were still a big apple band we went out and we saw kiss And we just flipped out. We're like, wow, these guys have a fan base and no record deal. It's incredible. And we couldn't help but notice that everywhere they had their logo. And it was all uppercase letters, K-I-S-S. And I couldn't help but also notice that Roxy Music was Roxy, four letters. So four and four, hmm, we're starting to get somewhere. Anyway, um... (laughs) The other big band that was signed to Atlantic Records was a group called ABBA. And ABBA had four letters and they were all uppercase. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden stuff started to make sense. Like I don't It's a sign. Yeah, it was like yeah, it was like we got to do something like that. We got to get one word that is uppercase. So Bernard said chic, and Tony and I laughed at him. We thought, like, that was the most ridiculous thing we ever heard. We liked being the Big Apple band, but we were open-minded, but we weren't that open-minded. Until Walter Murphy recorded a song called A Fifth of Beethoven, which was Beethoven's fifth done disco style, and he called himself Walter Murphy and the Big Apple Band. He was my schoolmate, or would have been my schoolmate had I gone to school and not taken Sesame Street, So Walter had graduated from Manhattan. He knew me. He knew all of We all knew each other. We all were in the same place. But he took the name, got a hit record. Everybody thought that it was Bernard and myself, including Luther Vandross, who we worked with and knew. So we changed our name to Chic. We cut our first record, which was Dance, 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 Yowza, Yowza, Yowza. Uh, Believe it or not, I hate to break people's hearts, but Tony Thompson is not playing drums on Dance, Dance, Dance. Because, as I said, no one really believed in the Chic concept. So that's Bernard Edwards, myself. The drummer is a guy named Jimmy Young. Rob Sabino played on it. And that was the beginning of Chic. But we got signed, just Bernard and myself, because all of this stuff happened so quickly, we didn't know that we weren't going to be the Big Apple band. We got the record deal and then a fifth of Beethoven came out. It was like, whoa, now what do we do? We became chic and we did the whole uppercase thing and we even looked at the Kiss logo and we noticed the two S's and the K and the I and we thought, wait a minute, we got two C's, an I and an H. Not far from Kiss, pretty cool. We'll take the anonymity of Kiss and the elegance of Roxy and bam, there you go, we have chic. The cool thing about this was is that we only looked like chic when we were dressed in couture clothing. Normally, people would not pay attention to us, and that's what we loved about KISS, is that they had a sense of anonymity. Like, no one had any idea. Like, when we first met KISS, they took off their makeup and they were sitting in the audience with us, where meanwhile, 10 minutes before, it was like complete pandemonium. Once they took off the makeup, no one had any idea who the guys were. So we thought that we wanted that kind of anonymity because we didn't look like stars. We didn't believe we were stars. And that's why we put the supermodels on the cover. They look like stars. <laughs> and we also thought people would think those two girls were the group. Like, that was perfectly fine with us. Just play the damn
2: record. Dance, dance, dance really reflected the melting pot that was New York City and you know the moves that you found in a club when it was released and the syncopation of the rhythms and the strings were unlike anything at the time including that break in the middle with the weird crazy sounds in it right How did you know when you recorded that when you recorded everybody dance? How did you know that you were onto something? I mean, obviously got played in a club and you got reactions. That we know. That that story's well told. We
1: had a pretty good instinct for what was happening in the clubs. We had seen a number of jazz artists that we were big fans of get hit records playing disco. And we thought, "Wow, this is pretty cool." We could play a style of music, hold your head up high, because it was cool and sophisticated chord changes. And then I would do all the orchestration. And if you look at you know, the people playing on any Chic record, it was always the cream of the crop of New York musicians. You know, one day we were working for Luther Vandross. He was our boss. We cut our first record. Next thing you know, we were his boss. <laughs> he came out on the road with us. He taught us the whole vocal style. We got signed to the same label. Luther Vandross was signed to Atlantic. So he has two albums on Atlantic. Neither was as big as the first Chic record. So we flipped the script and he became our employee. So things were going great for us right from the start. We got signed to a singles deal, only Bernard Edwards and myself. We weren't called Chic. We we made up the name after we got the deal. We were only signed to a singles deal. So our record had to be a hit. So that style of orchestration that I was doing was a cross between what was going on with Barry White and Silver Convention and stuff like that. But we didn't want to go heavy, heavy disco. We wanted our sound to really be about the band, about the rhythm section, and really about the interplay between Bernard Edwards and myself. I mean, you can hear all of the records are really about the bass and the guitar. And the cool piano voicings, you know, like the real cool piano pads. And, you know, the strings were important, but they weren't the focus. Unlike where Barry White, the strings and his voice were the focus. With us, it was the rhythm section.
2: So I'm holding Say Chic in my hand. I'm actually holding my original copy from back in the day. And I had checked off some tracks. Mm-hmm. Things like Savoir Faire, and particularly, At Last I'm Free, seven minutes and eight seconds. Yeah. So when people try to portray Chic as a disco band, it was indeed about the composition and about the tone and about the sound you were creating. It wasn't really about disco.
1: No, it wasn't about disco at all. It was about the openness of disco, the fact that disco allowed a band like us. We thought of ourselves more like a cross between Earthwind and & Fire and Cool and & The Gang more than we thought of ourselves like you know, Cerrone or the Village People. But, you know, we love Cerrone. We love the Village People. We love Donna Summer. That's just not who we were. We were jazz musicians that sort of learned how to write pop songs, like the people that we were, you know, proud of. The Norman Connors, Herbie Hancock, Herbie Mann, people like that. Roy Ayers, Joe Beck. All these people had big, big dance records, and we thought we could have a band that would specialize in these sort of jazzy dance records. You only needed to have... Yeah,
2: Bionic Boogie is an example.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bionic Boogie, and and, I mean, a lot of bands were those type of things. I mean, you think of all of the Philly stuff. These are all serious musicians who learned how to write really good pop songs. So that's what we were. And the only difference is that we went on the road. (laughs) We got a hit and we took it out there and we were on stage with, the hardcore funk bands. The same reaction that I had when I saw Roxy music, that's the reaction people had when they saw Chic. When they saw that we had girls on saxophone, trumpet, Four Girls on Violins, people had never seen that in R&B. I mean, it was like unbelievable And We were out there with like some of the most hardcore funk bands in the world. It was pretty exciting to be a band during those early days of, I guess those were the, maybe the last days of disco, because unfortunately those groups didn't go out and tour, so they never had a real presence. I think that if those groups had performed, the whole Disco Sucks movement would have never really brought them down. You know, if most of those bands were like Chic and could go out and play, I mean, hell, we could go play any day of the week with, you know, The Stones or Kiss, yeah, any of those bands, we'd have been fine. As a matter of fact, now I always tell my manager, how come we're not opening for like, you know, like Elton John and... Paul McCartney and and artists like that, because we certainly can hold our own. So we wanted to be with the rock bands. Matter of fact, the rock bands were some of our best friends. That's how we wound up producing Blondie. That's how I wound up producing Bowie, the B-52s. All those bands knew chic as players. We were not just studio guys. We were people who could go out and perform.
2: I would be remiss if we didn't go down the road with Katie, Debbie Kim, and Joni. Yeah. So it was the head of Atlantic who asked you to work your magic with them, right? Because they were literally family to him and that became the signpost for one of the most iconic songs of the era and for that matter today.
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, what happened is that the head of Atlantic was Jerry Greenberg at the time and he thought that we really had Studio 54 fairy dust in a bottle and that we could sprinkle it on anybody. He didn't offer us Sister Sledge, actually. He'd offered us the Rolling Stones and Bette Midler. And Bernard and I thought, well, how are we going to produce the Rolling Stone? Are we going to tell Keith and, and Mick what to sing and play? We had a formula, and we, we knew that our formula worked. So we said to Jerry, instead of giving us somebody famous, why don't you give us somebody that's not famous, and we can make them famous. I mean, and we weren't cocky. We just, we just knew what was happening in the streets. We said, if we can prove to you what we can do... Wouldn't we be more valuable than just working with somebody that's already bringing in money? What if we can take somebody that's not bringing in any money and make them happen? So he told us about this group called Sister Sledge that was like family to the label. And he dictated basically what would be the lyrics to We Are Family To Us. He talked about how when they come and visit the label, they stick together and this and that. (laughs) We went home and we looked at our notes. We were trying to act professional. We had no idea what we were doing. We had instinct and we had a desire, but we didn't know how producers handled themselves in meetings. We didn't know anything. We just walked up to the office and tried to act like we were professional producers. Because we had only produced Chic and we had only produced uh, Norma Jean Wright. So when he told us about Sister Sledge, we just superimposed what he had said onto them. Believe it or not, we never met Sister Sledge until they came to the studio to sing. And we basically had the whole album written and conceptualized before they walked in the door. When they walked in the door, they saw us scribbling out the final words to We Are Family And they got a little upset with us. They were like, what are you guys doing? We said, hold on, we're almost finished. (laughs) And and we were finishing up We Are Family. And next thing you know, we basically played their record because when we did the demos, we had already sang the song. So it was like, all you guys got to do is sing on top of us, and we got it.
2: How about that Nile Rodgers, Dennis? Seriously, I've been wanting to share this with friends, and they keep saying, when's it going to be released? When's it going to be released? And I said, well, it's going to be released around the time that the Chic Organization 1977-79 to box set is released.
0: And this box set is in stores as of November 23rd of 2018. You can get it at your usual record store, online outlets, digitally through your favorite streaming service but don't forget folks it does come in two physical sets it's a five cd box set and six disc vinyl version more music than you can shake a stick at from the master of funk Nile rogers it's chic and last but certainly not least don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next rhino cast Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Colt and Rich Mahan Promotions, all rights reserved.